invite you, if you would, to have your Bibles handy. You can take them and turn them to Isaiah 60. We're not far removed from the time we spent in the evening service with the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah. We're still with the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations right now. Uh, got a couple more chapters left in Lamentations to finish up. Within those some 50 messages of Jeremiah, however, we considered the message of the Lord to his people in the final days before the captivity, as well as that time immediately following their captivity. Now today, we go back in time, perhaps 100, 150 years or so prior to Jeremiah, to those days of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Isaiah lived and prophesied in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Zedekiah, kings of the southern nation of Judah. He was primarily a, a prophet to those southern uh, to the southern nation, to the southern kingdom, those southern kings, though many of his prophecies naturally deal with the northern kingdom as well. Isaiah was blessed by God with some of the most clear and indeed the most poignant prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, the one who we know as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Much of the book of Isaiah is dedicated to God's love and his promises to the nation and how that love and how those promises will manifest themselves in the latter days, in the end times of history. Today we consider one such prophecy. And I would like us to consider this prophecy in order to direct our attention toward one of the most important elements of the biblical reflection of Christ's coming, of Christ's birth of the, the impact and significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves here in Isaiah 60. And the prophecy of note, the prophecy in question, is the first five verses of Isaiah 60, where the Bible says this, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. We find here a great prophecy which within the context of Isaiah's natural prophetic flow seems to find its fullest fulfillment in the nature of the millennial kingdom and the realities of Israel's role as they play it in the millennial kingdom. This is a time when Israel, God's people Israel, will glow, if you will, with the glory of the Lord and this glow will pierce into the darkness of the earth and will draw men unto the Lord by drawing them unto this blessed nation. But though we find these events perhaps to experience their full, full, fullness or their, their fullest fulfillment in the nation of Israel and the days of Christ's reign during the Millennial Kingdom, we, we might well understand that Christ's advent, His first coming, His preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is an accurate reflection of this same reality, though not perhaps to the fullness that we'll see it in the Millennial Kingdom also well manifested in the ministry of Christ 
throughout the world through his church. And that's where we're going to go with this today. We're going to look at these verses. We're going to understand these verses. We're going to see how they manifest themselves in Christ's advent. And then we're going to see how they manifest themselves in us. And by God's grace in doing so, it will give us a, a, a needed perspective, an important perspective of how we relate ourselves to the reality of Christ's birth as Christ's church. So you're there in Isaiah 60, verse 1. We read it already. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. The call then, as we find in verse 1, is to rise up and to shine. A picture of a candle, if you will, being lifted up on a candlestick, elevating itself above its surroundings so that the light which it emanates might have the fullest effect upon the darkness that is surrounding it. Now, the notable exception, of course, is that within this context, we uh, see that the light uh, that is being emanated here is not a light that would, would slowly burn down like a candle would, right? But it is a light that is in itself, the candle is in itself, the light. The call here is that the object of this exhortation would shine the light of the glory of the Lord that has risen upon him, that he would arise so that the glory of the Lord, which is upon him, would be able to shine out into the darkness that is around them. And this darkness is described in verse two. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Isaiah describes the earth as being covered in a darkness as we perhaps see with the eye of the prophet and he, he sees the darkness that is covering the earth. He calls it a gross darkness. That idea there of gross there not being disgusting as we would think of it today, but rather the idea of large or of thick or of heavy darkness. A darkness that has fallen upon the people of the earth. Now, of course, this is not literal. We're not speaking of a thick cloud cover or the ineffectiveness of the sun. Isaiah is not looking and seeing some sort of uh, nuclear apocalypse or something where the sun has been blackened out and everyone is groping around in darkness because the sun is gone, but rather we're seeing a metaphorical spiritual idea here, this poetic idea of the world operating in this cover of darkness into which it needs a light to shine, a spiritual darkness, a spiritual pall that rests over the people of the earth. And, and the idea there and we see this in culture today so dramatically and so clearly, is that when a culture or a people or a person, for that matter, is walking in this thick darkness, they have no reference point by which to understand reality, right? They have no foundation by which to orient themselves properly to the world that is around them. A person that's walking in darkness, if all the lights were to be shut off in this room and all the windows were to be closed so that it is pitch dark and there's no light leakage, it doesn't mean that I can't walk. It doesn't mean that I can't talk. It just means that as it relates to my walking and talking, I cannot properly orient myself to everything else in the room so that I'm going to start walking and then I'm going to tumble down these steps. And then I'm going to continue walking and I'm going to bump into all these chairs and I'm going to bump into people and I'm going to bump into things and I'm going to fall over and I'm going to hurt myself. And all of these things are going to happen because I'm in darkness and I cannot properly orient myself to the things that are in the room. I can't properly orient how fast I should walk, how slow I should walk. I cannot properly orient whether I should turn, when I should turn, where I should go, and how I can get from point A to point B. 
And this is the idea. This is the picture of that darkness within, this, within which the world is operating, that there is a spiritual darkness, which means they don't have the means by which to glean a reference point for life. And it is within this context that Isaiah writes those words of exhortation, arise and shine. So he says here in verse 2 that in this time, within this darkness, the Lord will arise upon this one, thee here, and his glory shall be set upon thee. Now the question as to this thee, as I just mentioned, is most likely in, in its fullest form the nation of Israel. It is not uncommon, you know from, from our various studies, that the King James Bible gives us a tremendous help when it comes to second person personal pronouns. When we see a thee or a thy or a thou in our King James Bible, that's a second person singular pronoun. It means that we're speaking to one person. When you see a you or a your or a ye in our King James Bible, that's a second person plural pronoun. It means there's two or more people being spoken unto. So this, this object is not being spoken unto this person, is not being spoken unto as a group, but as a single entity. It is, however, not uncommon when the Lord speaks to the nation of Israel to use the second person singular pronoun. So this could be Israel, but we also see in this, and I believe we do see here, an element of a reflection of Jesus Christ himself as the Messiah, the one who is Messiah being spoken to, and then by, by proxy or by, by fullness, the nation of Israel within the millennium. So this one, the Lord would arise upon this one, and the glory of God would be seen upon him. Verse 3, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Within this time, when this one will arise and shine, God says that the Gentiles, that would be those that are walking in this thick darkness, that would be those who are outside of the light, completely disoriented by the spiritual consequences of their sinful choices, would come to this light as it shines brightly. This light arises, it shines, <coughs> And then the Gentiles seek to the light. And even here, that kings, that leaders, that nations would be drawn to the brightness of his rising, to the brilliancy of that rise. Isaiah looks with his mind's eye and he wonders of this day. And he marvels at this day. And so says in verse 4, Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. Isaiah says, lift up your eyes. Look around you and see the nations. See the people gather themselves to the brightness of that rising, to the brilliancy of that light. The kings coming to the glory of that light, the nations coming to the glory of that light, that light piercing into the darkness of, this, uh, of, of the world, that gross, that thick darkness that's upon this world, and then a light rises and shines and pierces that darkness, and people's eyes see a reference point, and it's a glorious reference point, and they're drawn to that reference point, and they start seeking unto that reference point from near and from far, that they may bask in the warm glow of that brightness. Verse 5. Then thou shalt see 
and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. When you see this, Isaiah says, as he's looking with his prophetic eye, when you see this, when you, you, when you, when you see this happening, you will flow together, a merging of the nations into that light and an enlargement of the heart, a reverence of the heart as it basks in the glory of the light of the Lord. And all of that because the abundance of the sea. Now we have here one of those references, if you recall from our Revelation series, one of the things that we noted is that oftentimes in prophecy we see the idea of the sea. And when we see the idea of the sea, there tends to be a general concept that the sea seems to represent the Gentile world or the unbelieving world, that you would have the land in prophecy and the land would normally uh, reflect the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the covenant nation, and then you'd have the sea which would reflect the unbelieving world, the, the, the world outside of the covenant of Israel. And so as we impose that interpretation upon this verse, we see a parallelism here that the abundance of the sea shall be converted to thee, the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Those two are saying the same thing. The abundance of the sea is the forces of the Gentiles. That the Gentiles, the sea, the, 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 the world outside of Israel, outside of the covenant nation, would come unto this one. And they'd be converted unto him. This one who reflects the light of the glory of the Lord. Now, as we read these words this morning, it's perhaps not difficult to imagine the link between them and the memorial which we observe in this Christmas season. In reality, we don't have to imagine, though, because the scriptures draw this link for us very, very clearly. The first step in this link is to understand the nature and the essence of the incarnation of Jesus Christ from a broad perspective. And the Gospel of John, chapter 1, gives us then that nature of... of this idea from a broad perspective. In John 1, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We're speaking of the Word here. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. We find a description here of the incarnation of Jesus Christ entering into this world as the very living Word of God. That He who always existed, who, He who was from the beginning, He who is the Creator, He who is the Sustainer, He who is life, and in this life was the light of men, and He who shines that light into the darkness, though the darkness does not necessarily Comprehended The fullest expression of the nature and the character and the will of God so that Jesus would say in John 14, verse 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And John 1, verse 14 tells us that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this word, who is, the light of, who is the light of life, becomes flesh and dwells among us. We see the Bible describe him as this life, as this light. And as he shined that light into the darkness, the darkness, the Bible says, comprehended it not. 
That word there, comprehend, it does not mean to understand in its broadest form as we think of it today. But the idea of comprehending something means to possess it or to apprehend it. So it has come to simply mean to understand, but the flavor of the idea of, of comprehending something means that I have grasped it or I have a- appropriated it, or I have apprehended it. So it makes sense when I say I, have, I, I, I comprehend what you're saying, I've grasped what you're saying, I've, I've appropriated what you're saying, I've seized what you're saying. But here in this, it does not mean that the darkness did not understand what the light was. It means that the darkness did not seize it, did not grab it, did not appropriate it. The darkness didn't, didn't, didn't possess it, did not accept the light that was shining though perhaps it should have. So Jesus himself attested to this theme during the brief years of his earthly ministry. In John chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We sing the song, The light of the world is Jesus. And it is well, for it is true. Jesus was in this world as the testimony of truth, as the light of God's truth that pierced the darkness of sin in this world. But Jesus himself, we know, was not the first to testify of this light. Going back to the days even prior to his birth, we find the position of this child clearly articulated through God's followers. And so it is that I'd like to take you back. I'd like you take, to take you back to a time six months prior to the birth of Jesus by Mary and Joseph. Mary's cousin Elizabeth has just given birth to a very special child of her own. The angel Gabriel announced the birth of this child to his father, Zacharias, as he performed his Levitical duties in the temple. The Bible tells us this was an answer to a prayer of many years, quite possibly a prayer that they had not prayed in many years, as we see Zacharias' response. Uh, he, is, uh, uh, he responds quite uh, with, with, with a good degree of incredulity. He doesn't quite believe what the angel is saying to him, most likely because that prayer had not been prayed in a very long time, and yet the Lord had remembered it, and indeed the Lord had answered it. They had desired a child, and the Lord would now give them one. So Gabriel tells Zacharias that his son would be that voice crying in the wilderness, set to prepare the way for Messiah, and that his name would be called John. This was the prophecy of the angel Gabriel on that day. He would be the voice crying in the wilderness. His name would be John. Well, Zacharias, as I mentioned, did not necessarily believe this. So he sought a sign. I guess having an angel being appear and make a promise was not necessarily enough of one. So he sought for a sign. He says, what sign is there that this thing, this incredible thing that you've told me would come to pass? And the sign was one that Zacharias was perhaps not prepared for, maybe not thrilled about. Maybe he should have been more specific, like Gideon asked God to make a fleece wet or something. So the angel Gabriel tells Zacharias, that his sign would be that he would not be able to speak until all of the things that Gabriel promised to him came to pass. Naturally, all of these things would not come to pass for at least nine months. And so he was going to be in silence for a little while, have a good long time to contemplate the nature of faith. Then his son is born. And the people rejoice that Elizabeth and Zacharias have been given a son as they have always desired. 
the eighth day after that child's birth arrives, and that's the day where they are to circumcise him, and they are to give him his name. So they circumcise him, and the family thinks he should be called Zacharias after his father. Zacharias, still mute, insists, however, that his name would not be his own, but rather his name would be John. As the angel had told him, the people are confused by this. But ironically, that was something that Gabriel had specifically said would happen, right? Which means Zacharias held the key, the final key to unlocking his own voice, because he, through his decision to name John John, would fulfill the last bit of the prophecy that would then enable him to speak once again. So Zacharias calls him John. And at this moment, he himself becomes an agent through whom the last element of this angelic promise is fulfilled. His voice is given back to him, and he immediately uses his voice to praise God and to prophesy of this coming Messiah. With grand exclamation, with tremendous praise, Zacharias then says, these words in Luke 1, verses 67 to 79. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, and that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. He's speaking now to his son, John, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Within these wonderful words of praise unto our God, we find Zechariah extol a particular characteristic of the Messiah that would come, that through the tender mercy of God, this one who he calls the day spring from on high, had visited them. The idea of a day spring there, literally the spring of the day, is in fact a sunrise, right? The sunrise, the day spring from on high. That the end of the season of darkness would be pierced with light as the horizon, as, as the sun over the horizon, as it arises and the day is brought, uh, brought in as the sun arises for the whole world to see. Zechariah says, that is what is coming. That is the Messiah. He is the day spring from on high, a light that he might give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Do you see the glimmers of Isaiah 60 in that? All those who sit in the darkness of their own hearts, all those who rest in the shadow of an eternity of separation from God, might be brought into the light through this day spring from on high as it arises and shines. Zechariah was the first, some six months prior to the birth of Jesus, to draw the connection, at least as it relates to the Gospels, between this child of Mary and Joseph and the light of the world. But he certainly wouldn't be the last. 
The Bible tells us six months later, Christ is born. Born in a humble manger because there was no room in the inn. Accompanied that evening by shepherds who watched their flocks that night until a multitude of heavenly hosts announced his birth to them, crying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Mary would remain until the end of the days of her purification. According to Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, this would be a total for a man-child of 40 days. Following this purification, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple to be dedicated in obedience to that very same passage of Scripture where they were to dedicate and redeem their firstborn son from the Lord. Thus, Joseph and Mary find themselves in Jerusalem. They find themselves in the temple. They are offering up these two doves. And there we find a man named Simeon who had come by the Spirit into the temple on that day. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 27 through 32, we read these words. And it came to pass by the uh, and he came to pass, that would be Simeon, by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed him and said, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Here it is a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So Zechariah saw it. Simeon saw it too. Simeon knew by the Spirit that this child was to be the one who would arise and shine, who would bear the light of the glory of the Lord, the one unto whom the Gentiles would seek and who would gather themselves together to come to him. And when we remember the birth of our Savior every year, it is this that we remember. We remember the day when light pierced the darkness of this world as the very Word of God was made flesh. And that calls us to remember the day when the light pierced into the darkness of our own hearts, does it not? It calls us to remember that we saw that light and we came to that light, that we might bask in that light of the glory of the Lord. Or perhaps you sit here on this Sunday morning before Christmas and you have never come to that light. Maybe you have seen that light as that light has pierced into the darkness of this world, but you comprehended it not. And you've never come to that place where you've recognized that you're a sinner and that your sin has separated you from God and that there's nothing that you can do to turn the darkness that is in you into light. Darkness is, by definition, the absence of light. And until there is a light that is shined into your heart, your heart will be darkness. And perhaps it is today that you're recognizing that there is no solution in yourself to your sin. That there's no way you can earn your way to God. There's no way you can work your way to God. There's no way you can buy your way to God. No amount of church attendance, no baptism is going to get you to God because the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. On the day where God's people stand before him in glory and we sing the songs of our redemption, there will be no bragging. There will be no boasting on that day. I will not be able to pat myself or anyone else on the back and say, wow, good job in getting here because I did nothing to get here. 
It was only what Christ has already done for me in his finished work on the cross. That me in my state of separation from God, in my state of sinfulness, one day came to a, a faith in the reality that Jesus Christ was born. Born of a virgin, born under the law, born without sin. God in flesh. That God in flesh lived this life and he lived it perfectly, never once having sinned, never once having separated himself from God. But at the end of that life, he submitted himself to a sinner's death. The scripture's telling us that on that day, the Father made him, the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that Jesus Christ on that day as he hung on that cross took the punishment for your sin and took the punishment for my sin and bore it in his own body on the tree. But he didn't stay dead because a dead Savior would not be a Savior that could do anything for me. How could a Savior give me eternal life? if I can go find his bones, if he has not eternal life himself. So on that third day, following his death, the Bible tells us that the tomb was found empty. And hundreds and hundreds of people saw the risen Lord. He is risen just as he said. And so the scriptures tell us anybody who recognizing their own incapacity to get themselves to God, to be made right with God, and acknowledging that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them, bore their sin, was buried and rose again the third day and is alive and thus can give you eternal life. Anyone who will believe that with all of their heart, who recognizing it, who acknowledging it, who commit their lives unto it, will be saved. If that's not you today, would you make that decision today? Are you ready today to come to the point where you acknowledge that light that has shined in the world, that Jesus Christ, that the Word of God incarnate is the only reference point by which we can properly orient ourselves to truth in this world? Isaiah 60 had foreseen the day when the light would pierce the darkness of this world and the Gentiles would seek unto it. The prophets recognized Jesus to be that light. Jesus testified himself to be the light of the world. And I'd like to make one more connection this morning, which draws this concept into even more relevance to us today. Not only is that very same light that has pierced the darkness of your own hearts reconciled you to God and made you, as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says, accepted in the beloved. But it is this very same light that we bear to the world around us. I have spoken perhaps to one here today who has never accepted that light, who does not bear that light, who is perhaps trying to produce that light in himself. He is trying to produce in himself that which his nature is fundamentally incapable of producing. And it is not until we accept Christ as our Savior, until we receive his light into our life, that then we are able to reflect that light in our actions and to the world that is around us. That very same light to those who are in Christ is in you. And so as we read these words, arise, shine, 
We recognize a near fulfillment in Jesus Christ that as we consider, as we will consider on this Wednesday morning, the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ and the reality of his incarnation, the joy of that day so that the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. They were proclaiming this. There was excitement in the heavens. There was excitement on earth because the light had come to the world. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Salvation had been proffered. We recognize the nearest fulfillment in, in the life of Christ. We recognize the, perhaps the farthest elements of that fulfillment in Isaiah 60 in context to the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in between Christ's earthly ministry and Christ's second coming, in between that first advent and that second advent, there's this period of time that we call the church. And we recognize that in this time, it is for us to bear that light. That we should arise and shine. Because darkness covers the earth, does it not? Because a gross darkness covers the people of this earth, does it not? And this is not me being interpretively loose or irresponsible with the scriptures. We have every reason to believe that we, as the church of the living Christ, are to be that light to the Gentiles. That we are the very reflection of Jesus Christ to the world around us. We are the light. As we have known that Christ bore that light to the world, so he commissioned us to do the same. Paul said as much. In Acts chapter 13, he and Barnabas had gone to a synagogue in Antioch to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jews there in Antioch had flatly rejected them, flatly rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, after which Paul replied in Acts 13, verses 44 through 47, the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Wouldn't that be something? But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. So the Jews were angry because Paul was preaching as much to the Gentiles as to the Jews. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, that being the Jews, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Paul tells the people that the Lord Jesus Christ himself had commanded Paul and Barnabas, apostles of the early church, that he had set them to be a light of the Gentiles, and that through them salvation would be extended to the ends of the earth. It is not a stretch, brethren, for us to understand that we bear the light of Christ to the world today, that we are called to carry the light of the glory of the Lord to the ends of the earth, that Christ's church is called to reflect the light which has pierced into the darkness of our own hearts to a world that is lost, dying, and desperate for a point of reference by which to orient themselves to the world that is around them. It should not surprise us that Paul and Barnabas knew this to be a part of their commission, for had not our Lord called his followers to do this very thing? 
Had not Jesus in much teaching reflected unto them the very essence of Isaiah chapter 60? Isaiah says, Arise, shine. Did not our Lord exhort us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16? Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And they give it light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Arise, church. Shine, church. This is the call, is it not? That we would arise, that we would shine, putting our light on a candlestick that it may give light to all that are in the house. That we would allow the light of the love of God, of the goodness and mercy and long-suffering of our Lord, all that has pierced the darkness of our hearts to shine into the darkness which covers the earth and to the people which are covered in a thick darkness. If not you, then who? My uh, children went out, as we do every year, and, and uh, they, they did some caroling. And we take, we have little bags with a gospel tract and a few cookies, and my children carol, and then they give them. We go to the, the various banks that we, uh, that we, we um, uh, go to in, in town and such. And, and as we discussed this during Bible time one night, that was, that was the question that we put forward. If not us, then who? If not you, then who? If not you toward your neighbor, who will reach them? Well, you know, internet, TV. You really want to trust that to the internet or to the television? Well, you know, it, it, if it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. Well, is it supposed to be you? Arise, shine. Shine into the darkness which covers the earth. Shine into the people that rest in a thick darkness. Are there people around you that are hurting and disoriented? They're trying to figure it out. You've got the answer. They may not listen. But are, have you arisen? Are you shining? Isaiah 60, verse 4. Isaiah said, Lift up thine eyes round about and see. Did not our Lord tell his followers in John 4, verse 35, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. People are ready. Which people? Don't know. But they're ready. To this end, Christmas becomes something more than simply a remembrance to us. Something more than even the blessed remembrance of the day when the light entered the world. Jesus Christ came as a shining light, piercing into the darkness of this world, testified by Zacharias, testified by Simeon, testified, of course, by all of the Old Testament prophets. It's a reminder, not simply of what God did when we see that child in the manger, but of something God began. May I say that again? When we see that child in a manger, it's not just a remembrance of something God did. It's a remembrance of something God began. Began to do. In Christ. 
And it continues today through Christ's church. The work continues. You are the light that shines into this world if you are in Christ. To you, our Lord said, arise, shine your candle. Don't put it under a bushel. To you, our Lord said, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They are white under harvest. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We thank God for this wonderful time of year. We remember the birth of Christ. And that for many reasons. We love this time of year because it's a time to joyfully remember when God pierced the darkness of this world with the light of life. It's a time of joy. It's a time of excitement. It's a time of merriment. And I hope it is that for you. I hope you've not allowed the sourness of what it is becoming in the pagan world to celebrate Christmas to sour you from the joy that this memorial in this time can represent. We love this time of year because it reminds us of so great salvation by God who is rich in mercy, who for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made provision for us, hath quickened us together, made provision for us to be reconciled with him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We love this time of year because it reminds us of the day when our Lord will return and receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. Let us also love this time of year because it reminds us of not just what Christ did, but of what Christ began, that we might arise, that we might shine, that we might look up, that we might see the fields which are white unto harvest, that we might set our sights upon a new year with a renewed determination that the glory of the Lord will be seen in us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 